This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Pregnant women and newborn babies addicted to heroin have become casualties of the nation's opioid epidemic. There are ways to treat these patients, but in rural areas especially, doctors lack proper training. CPR's Andrea Dukakis met one physician who's scrambling to meet the growing need in southern Colorado. Dr. Barbara Troy zips in and out of half a dozen exam rooms down a long hallway. You look beautiful. Thank you. Sobriety plus. Good job. How's it feel? Good. Okay. Good. Good. Dr. Troy is helping Crystal Chavaria get off heroin. Chavaria is due with her third child in June. She started on prescription painkillers, she says, for a mind change. Dr. Troy isn't just treating Chavaria's addiction. She's also her obstetrician. Today, Troy listens to the baby's heartbeat. What do you think, Mama? It's good. Got our little racehorse here. Recently, Dr. Troy started Chavaria on buprenorphine to help wean her off heroin. It's an alternative to methadone. Methadone requires regular visits to a special clinic for treatment. Chavaria takes the drug at home. It's a strip she puts under her tongue. And there isn't the wrenching pain heroin addicts describe when they quit cold turkey. The first couple weeks were a struggle. It was hard, and I did relapse a few times. You don't, like, withdraw. You wake up in a better mood, and you feel a lot better about yourself. Chavaria lives in Monte Vista, about 20 miles from Troy's clinic in Alamosa. Like other rural parts of the country, addiction to prescription painkillers and heroin is skyrocketing here. Dr. Troy is the only person who can prescribe buprenorphine for miles in the vast San Luis Valley. For at least 50, 80 miles, maybe 100, I don't know. To prescribe the drug, a doctor or nurse has to go through a day-long online training. It's a relatively new treatment, and at this point, few doctors in rural areas are certified. Crystal Chavaria says her cousins introduced her to heroin. She found out about Dr. Troy when her sister was pregnant and trying to get clean. When you look at generations and generations of drug use, and a young one comes up that can break it, you know, it's going to change the families of the valley. You're going to be one of those changing elements. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, you are. Yeah. And so this is a this is a good story. Javaria is determined to stay off heroin so her baby's healthy. What scares me is after I have the baby, if, you know, as long as I stay away from the people that I was hanging out with, I know I can do it. But if not, it's going to be hard. Another patient is Rosalind Garcia. She waits for Troy in an exam room with her 10-month-old son, Dion. Garcia has three other children. She says she got addicted to painkillers when her partner broke her jaw. Then she started using heroin. She tried to get off that by herself, but the withdrawals were too intense. It is like the flu a hundred times over. I mean, you feel like you just want to die. I would feel like I wanted to bite my nails. It would make my legs feel like they were totally, like somebody was stabbing them. I wanted to tear out my hair and also cry. It just makes you feel like you're not even in your own body. Dr. Troy started Garcia on buprenorphine while she was pregnant with Dion. When he was born, he had to stay a few days extra in the hospital to be monitored. He was very antsy and irritated. Um, He was had a little fever and then he just didn't seem to want to sleep very well. 
but the effects would have been far worse if it had been heroin. Garcia says Dion acts like a normal 10-month-old, and she says she feels better, too. Garcia's changing Dion's clothes when Dr. Troy pops into the exam room. Yay, are you out of your jammies? Dr. Troy tells Garcia she wants to move her next appointment up a week. Usually you were doing two weeks. Was there something wrong? Yes. Well, you're positive for opiates. I was? Yeah. I shouldn't be. Okay. Troy says relapses are part of the process. She's actually done very well. Actually very well over time. But it's like, no, it goes back to a conversation. It goes back to being seen more often. You know, are we getting you what you need? What Dr. Troy needs is more help. One Metro Denver group plans to come to the San Luis Valley and encourage more doctors and nurses to get this special training. I'm Andrea Dukakis, CPR News. And Andrea is with us now to talk about the dearth of doctors who treat this type of addiction in the Valley. Hi, Andrea. Hi, Ryan. You mentioned a Denver group that's trying to help with this. What's the plan? The goal is to encourage more family practices in the San Luis Valley and on the rural eastern plains to treat opioid addiction. And that includes increasing the number of doctors who can prescribe buprenorphine. CU got a $3 million grant for the project. Even just a few more practitioners like Dr. Troy in the area around Alamosa would be a huge help. Now, rural areas aren't the only ones struggling with opioid addiction. Cities are too. Why focus uh, there? It's true this problem is everywhere, but nationally, abuse is rising fastest for rural communities. And the two dozen counties CU's focused on are in the rural parts of Colorado that have been hardest hit. Dr. Jack Westfall's leading this effort. He says there are a few reasons why people in rural areas might be vulnerable to addiction. One, the economy has never been as good in rural as it has been in urban. So there's some economic issues that relate to increased stress and anxiety and propensity to use opioids. Second, when patients from rural communities get seen in urban settings, they get large amounts of opioids so that they don't have to travel back and forth. So Orthopedic surgeons and dentists and ERs send them home back to Springfield, Colorado, or Eads, or Burlington, or Julesburg with large amounts of medicines. And there are a few other reasons, theories, about why opioid addiction has had such an impact on rural areas. For one, jobs there, like farming, have high injury rates, and that can be mean people start on these kinds of painkillers and then get dependent on them. And a sociologist at the University of Nebraska has this counterintuitive theory. He says in small towns, people actually have larger social networks than city dwellers. And he says that can make it easier to get drugs. Oh, interesting. So people can go to methadone clinics to get off heroin, but healthcare providers can also be certified to prescribe buprenorphine, as you uh, have reported. And that's something that patients can take at home. Given the need, why aren't more practitioners getting trained? One reason in some rural areas is that doctors are only just beginning to recognize the advantages of buprenorphine. Others just haven't taken the time to go through the training. Dr. Westfall, who again is spearheading this project, thinks there's also another reason. The way I was trained about addiction was that heroin addicts were homeless people living in downtown Denver. 
that was the image of a heroin addict. And so now practicing docs are like, I don't want that group of people in my waiting room. And so they're worried that it will be very disruptive to their clinic, that this is a group of people who have high needs and there's a lot of social disruption, not recognizing this change in the demographic of who's addicted to opioids could be anybody. It's teachers and bankers and farmers and, yes, some homeless derelicts in downtown Denver. The demographics of addiction are so different. And so practices haven't started doing it until recently when it's just become so clear that they can't ignore it. All right. There are a few drugs to help people kick a heroin addiction. Why so much talk right now about buprenorphine? One reason, as we said, is the ease of taking it at home. And Dr. Westfall says the rules governing methadone are 40 years old and don't take into account the relatively new problem of addiction to prescription painkillers. And because heroin was an illegal substance, we required heroin addicts to come in and get their medication in person, in a facility that was regulated by the DEA. And so methadone has to be given in a licensed addiction treatment center. So as a primary care doc, I'm not allowed to prescribe methadone for addiction. So that's a big reason for this movement toward buprenorphine, where any doctors who's certified, any doctor who's certified can prescribe it. And theoretically, that means more people can be helped. A little explanation of the terms here. Buprenorphine is a generic drug. A common brand is Suboxone. Okay. Is buprenorphine addictive? It acts like methadone to cut down on cravings, but there is abuse since it can be snorted or a person can inject it. There's also abuse with methadone, and the goal is to eventually get off the drug. So you spent a few days in the San Luis Valley, Andrea, with Dr. Troy's patients. As we said, she's the lone provider in the area who is licensed to prescribe these drugs. She came to Southern Colorado, I understand, in 2014. Was this what brought her to the Valley? Not at all. Dr. Troy moved there in 2014 because her mother was sick and she wanted to be near her. She'd been practicing in northern New Mexico. When I left New Mexico, they go, are you going to do Suboxone over there? And I go, no. No one has a license, so they must not have a problem. I didn't know the community at that point in time. And within a week or two, I was like, oh, they need a Suboxone program. Shortly after Dr. Troy arrived, she also set up a methadone clinic in town. But that, combined with her Suboxone program, doesn't come close to meeting the need. Yeah, so there is a lot of need. Did you meet anyone she's treating for addiction who isn't pregnant or who isn't a new mother? Yes, and there's one I just can't get out of my mind, Esperanza Garcia. She's 18 now. She was 14 when she started using heroin. At the time, she was living with her dad in Pueblo. She said her best friend and another boy were using it. One day, I I just wanted to see what they were into, and I had no idea. Like I didn't even know about heroin, about the addiction, or that you could go through withdrawals. And after that, I just kept doing it for four years, and then I started shooting it up, and I had got to the point where I didn't even have anywhere to stay anymore. 
Esperanza called her mother, who lives in Center, Colorado, in the San Luis Valley, and her mom drove up and got her. It was a weekend, and they couldn't get in to see Dr. Troy until Monday. Esperanza's mother, Alicia Garcia, says she rocked her daughter all weekend. Mm. They didn't sleep for two days because the withdrawals were so bad. She vomited. She was shaking. She was cold. She was hot. She was freezing. We had our heater like on 100, and she was still cold. I think everything that you can imagine, I would just try to rub her body because her body ached so bad. And I couldn't even touch her because it hurt her so bad. Esperanza Garcia says the minute she got to Dr. Troy's office and got on Suboxone, she felt better. I honestly didn't think it would work, but when I had showed up over here, they cut it in fours, and that first piece I took, I was already feeling relief. And, like, with heroin, it only lasts for, like, 30 minutes, and then you want more and more. But with the Suboxins, you don't even have a craving. Dr. Troy set her up in a counseling group for people on Suboxone. She says everyone's older, but it doesn't really matter. It's crazy because we've all been through the same thing, like the exact same story in the same pattern, like you lose your job, your car, your house, everything just, and then now we're all back up and we're all moving up at the same time. Esperanza's mother says she doesn't know what she would have done without Dr. Troy's help, and she's proud of how far her daughter's come. She's just so smart and talented. She could do anything she wants. I mean, she's she's just an awesome kid. And I don't know what I'd do without her, but I know that, like, I can see good things coming for her. Esperanza wants to get her GED and become a nurse one day so she can help kids who go through what she's been through. Andrea, thanks so much for your reporting. Thanks, Ryan. CPR's Andrea Dukakis. There are photos from her visit to the San Luis Valley and a map of the high overdose rates there at cprnews.org. Andrea produced this story with digital reporter Nathaniel Miner. Have you heard of cyberpunk? It's a whole genre of literature, movies, with a pretty bleak outlook on the future. Think the 1982 movie Blade Runner. They slaughtered 20- a Blade Runner's job is to hunt down replicants. Manufactured humans you can't tell from the real thing. What's this? Roy Batty. Probably the leader. There was just one outfit making replicants that superhuman. The Terrell Corporation. Commerce is our goal here at Tyrell. More human than human is our motto. This subgenre of science fiction was popular in the 1970s and 80s, and some people say it's dead because the future it imagined is now. Denver author Joshua Viola says not so fast. He has edited a new cyberpunk anthology. It's called Cyberworld, Tales of Humanity's Tomorrow, and it's up for a Colorado Book Award. He speaks with my colleague, Nathan Heffel. Josh, welcome. Uh, thanks for having me. I understand that the cyberpunk genre draws upon specific elements from like classic detective stories, film noir, and it's typically set in this dystopian type of world. What else makes the genre unique? Uh, well, you're, you're right. It's very gritty uh, and, and, and uh, very noir. Um, but I, but I, I think what's really unique about it is that it um, really reflects what's happening, you know, uh, today. 
uh, even back in the 80s when it's when it was incredibly popular. Um, uh, you know, it was looked more as like, you know, this is the future. This is far off. But uh, here we are today. And, and it's what we're seeing. Well, how do you think cyberpunk <clears throat> is relevant today? Well, what, what about it? Because I, I see Blade Runner. It's dark. It's gritty. There's nanotechnology all over. I don't see that here. <laughs> right. Well, um, it's it's about uh, uh, merging, you know, civilization with technology. You're you're on Facebook. You're on social media. Um, you know, we're we're a hive mind. So that's, you know, that, that, that is definitely cyberpunk and it's about mega, mega corporations and hackers, you know, uh, and the politics that are involved and look at, you know, the last election, uh, hackers, you know, were, were that, that was certainly, uh, something that was taking place and, you know, you got the super rich that are con- in the white house. So, so it's perspective then it seems like. Sure. Sure. It- do you think this recent growth in cyberpunk stems from 80s nostalgia? I'm thinking about the Netflix series Stranger Things and things like that, where we are longing for this time back in the 1980s. Uh, definitely. I mean, you know, uh, uh, as the uh, intro here started, we've got Blade Runner, mm-hmm. of course. That was, you know, that that really defined uh, cyberpunk and popularized it, uh, uh, you know, many would argue. Um, and then, of course, The Matrix. But we're even today, uh, Ghost in the Shell opens in theaters, and that is a very heavy cyberpunk film. I saw it last night, and uh, very cool. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, the 80s, there is this nostalgic callback, and certainly in the book, uh, you'll, you'll see that in Cyberworld. Um, but it, it's more than that. Like I said, I, I think that it, um, it, it's here and now. You've said that cyberpunk helped predict the future through science fiction. This is a genre of science fiction. Can mm-hmm. you give me an example of that sci-fi-ness that you're seeing today? Um, well, well, you know, I mean, we, when it comes down to, as I mentioned, just with social media yeah. technology that we're using, but also uh, in the medical field, you know, we're, um, you know we're, you're, you're seeing animatronic limbs and, and so on and so forth. So uh, we've just become so used to it. It's, it's less shock value. I think it was shock value back then. And we've just kind of slowly evolved into this world. Is there a formula of a cyberpunk story? I mean, does it have to always feel dystopian? Oh, well, I, I personally, I prefer that. Um, I actually, uh, uh, earlier today, uh, Mario Acevedo, whose, uh, uh, his, his stories in the book, uh, reactions, he had posted a recent review and, um, the, the review was positive, but they, they mentioned the same thing, you know, where's the humor? Why can't, you know, why can't cyberpunk use that? So, um, you know, there, there's certainly things out there, but I, I prefer the darker, grittier things, uh, for just on a personal level. Yeah. There are a number of Colorado authors featured in your anthology, including uh, Warren Hammond. Mm -hmm. He wrote a pretty dark story about climate change, repressed people, nanotechnology. Uh, Do do you have an excerpt of that? And would you mind reading a little bit of that? Sure. Yeah. And just to give you a brief brief little synopsis, uh, his story, which is called The Bees of Kiribati, um, you know, climate change has left large portions of the world in ruin. And the aftermath has forced uh, refugees to kind of take matters into their own hands. And it has a, a pretty dark um, ending. But yeah, um, this is a, a quick little excerpt from a story. I spotted Detective Inspector Keo at the end of the corridor, his back against the wall, smoke snaking from the cigarette lodged between his fingertips. Instinctively, I smoothed the wrinkles on my skirt before starting in his direction. My heels echoed in the empty corridor, but he didn't look my way his lips moving in silent conversation with whoever was jacked into his head. Stopping a couple feet away, I waited for him to end his conversation. When he did, I pressed my hands together in front of my chest and offered a slight bow of my head. He took a quick drag before floating my name on a cloud of smoke. Kaikoa? I nodded. He asked, You speak Gilbertese? Again, I nodded. Come with me, he said. 
I followed him upstairs to the fourth floor of the police headquarters, where we veered wide to pass a small group of foreigners speaking in somber voices. A teary-eyed woman stepped forward, clearly intending to ask the detective a question, but he waved her off and led me into a small interrogation room that smelled of mildew. That is that is such a I, I, it's such an interesting. It, it seems dark. It seems film noir. <laughs> it seems there's something happening, and then the story is a detective story essentially. Yeah. How do you how do you make cyberpunk cyberpunk in today in today's reality? How do you keep it that way? Is it just bringing in those those you know film noir aspects to it? Uh, well, you know that's certainly one uh, uh, ingredient for sure. But again, I, I think science fiction as a whole is a reflection of today, and, and it's just finding creative ways, um, it, you know, to, uh, uh, to to pull those experiences in and and try to offer future, uh, you know, kind of futuristic visions of, of where we're going. So, you know, and that's the fun uh, uh, when it comes to an anthology. We've got 20 short stories in the book. And so we're seeing just these ideas from 20 different authors. And, and the, you know, it's very diverse. There's a lot of cool, cool stuff in there. Now, uh, this book also comes with its own soundtrack. Be prepared. Take a listen to this. This definitely has a 1980s vibe to it, oh, yeah. you know? I- I've not heard of a book coming with a soundtrack before. Why did you decide to add one? Well, uh, my first two novels were actually published by the music label that's, that's involved. That's the, the music that you're listening to, which is uh, Fixed Music. And the artist uh, that's the music, this is, um, uh, uh, I think the track that we're listening to right now is um, Salvation Code by Scandroid, right. which um, is, is put together by the mastermind Clayton. Uh, who's known for Cell Dweller. Um, but, you know, I, I, I wanted to offer a sensory experience. You know, we've got the, the book, the stories. It's got some great art in there by Aaron Lovett. And then to top it off, I just thought it would be awesome to have a soundtrack. What did any of that mean? What, you know, adding all that together, you know, putting all this stuff into kind of a tactile sense of reading. I mean, you just typically books on a, you know, right. words on a page. Right. You know, what it comes down to is what I really look for, what I like. When I see these just really cool packages and it has, uh, 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 people are just putting out some awesome stuff. That's, that's really what I wanted to do. So this is, um, when I tell some friends, you know, what, or, or, or those that are curious, what's the, what's the soundtrack about? It's, it's a Josh Viola mixtape. It's just a collection of, um, songs that I really like, but, uh, you know, to go along with that, it's it's a companion uh, uh, product, and I like offering those those cool extras. That, you know, when you pop in a Blu-ray or a DVD, and you've got the special features. Well, this is the extra stuff you get. We also have uh, trading cards with bubble gum, T-shirts, uh, PlayStation Four dynamic themes, and a variety of other things. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're speaking with Joshua Viola. He's the editor of a new cyberpunk anthology, Cyberworld: Tales of Humanity's Tomorrow. It's up for a 2017 Colorado Book Award. There is another uh, piece in this book uh, that deals with uh, cyborgs. It's by Angie Hodap of Denver. It's called We Will Take Care of Your Own. Can you read briefly from that and give us a quick idea what that's about? Sure. Uh, So We Will Take Care of Our Own by Angie Hodap. It's basically about a senator trying to pass robot legislation during an election year uh, while also, you know, secretly kind of acknowledging the the horrors of the politics. So um, here's an excerpt. The first thing Tia noticed as they entered the clinic was the smell. Like rancid cooking oil mixed with sulfur, it stung her eyes, and she resisted the urge to hold her sleeve to her nose. 
She concentrated instead at the auditorium doors at the far end of the, of the main hall. Behind those doors, the press were waiting. Once she passed through them, she'd be fine. Eyes forward, Tia commanded herself. Don't look. She looked anyway. To either side, defective robots lined the long hallway. Some sat on the floor. Some stood. They rocked or twitched or quivered or seized. One spun mindlessly in place. One picked at its own damaged skin while clear, oily plasma, the source of that god-awful smell, oozed down its arms and legs. Tia's stomach soured. Every tick, every spasm was an involuntary response to faulty components no one seemed able to diagnose or correct. She continued to smile, to force one foot in front of the other, but now that she'd looked, she couldn't look away. That deals with robots that have gone wrong. It deals with politics. Uh, Is that... uh something that also the fact of maybe an antihero, the misfits, the, the downtrodden, are they a part of a specific uh, part of, of this type of writing? Oh, de- I mean, definitely the antihero is a, a pretty prominent force, I would say, in, in, cyber world, in cyberpunk. Um, with Angie's story in particular, what I find interesting is, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's looking, it's, it's a kind of a social commentary of those that are suffering and being taken advantage of for political purposes. And she's uh, just use cyberpunk as a way to, uh, you know, turn them into androids or robots as an observational standpoint. So, um, but yeah, I mean, when it when it comes down to, I mean, even going back to Blade Runner, you know, there's there's uh, how you look at uh, Deckard and what he's doing. You know, is he an antihero? Is he not? Um, it, that's that's very prominent. And, and finally, why are cyberpunk stories always set in dystopian society? Well, I think that's that's what's fascinating. I mean, uh, uh, we're we're curious about that. We're a little bit afraid, and and that's what fiction's all about: is presenting, you know, quote unquote, alternate realities. Are we headed this way? Or are we not? And and if we are, you know, is this is this one of the outcomes that that we're going to see? So uh, that's that's interesting. Josh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it. Joshua Viola of Denver edited the new cyberpunk anthology Cyber World, Tales of Humanity's Tomorrow. It's up for a 2017 Colorado Book Award. Read an excerpt and see a book trailer at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters from Colorado Public Radio. Just inside Rocky Mountain National Park, the northernmost entrance, there's a chunk of land that until recently was privately owned. It's the site of 14 cabins that for decades people rented from all over the world. This month, the sale of those cabins and of the property was complete, and the national park took ownership. CPR's Rachel Estabrook met the longtime caretaker as he buttoned up the cabins for the last time back in September. The story of Cascade Cottages is really a love story, but it wasn't always love at first sight, like when caretaker Richard Seip arrived as a visitor in 1987. As I recall, the the mattresses were pretty lumpy, (laughs) and the the decor was not the best, but um, hey, they were cabins. We understood that. Sipe was a widower, and when he came back for a weekend a few years later, he met Grace Davis. Her parents owned the place. We were both from Wichita. I 
ask her if she wanted to go out to dinner on Saturday night, the last night we were here. She said yes. And so um, we went went to dinner to Dunraven, and she asked me later, she says, how did you know that was my favorite restaurant? And I said, well, that was the only one I knew where it was. <laughs> they got hitched the next spring. When Grace and I got married, she said, do you know what I do in the summertime? And she had spent every summer out here as a child. Grace Davis's father had just passed away, so she and Richard took over. They replaced the mattresses, and the cabins got a makeover. For a few years, they moved back and forth to Kansas. We both retired in 1994, so that we got to spend all our time out here. Grace and I had 24 wonderful years, and uh, she passed away on opening day in 2014. Opening day for the cabins that year. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. I see you're wearing your Kansas University Jayhawk sweatshirt. You still got that Kansas pride. She bought this for me. <laughs> Richard Seip has loved the slow, simple life managing Cascade Cottages. Each day in the summer, he checked in guests. We would have a little map of the cottages. And if they're in cabin 13, you just take a little dirt road and the second cabin on the riverside. And that's it. So this is number 13, which has a beautiful picture window out toward Fall River. But you can see that the flies are attracted by the the warmth. The hand-built cabin has two rooms and no frills, except for a ceiling fan, which is the most modern thing in here. The cabin was built soon after World War II. Several others on the property are even older. Do you have a favorite spot here? My favorite spot is in cabin three, which is where Grace and I reside. It's just a small cabin. It's a one-room cabin, but it's the only cabin in the whole complex that has a bathtub. (laughs) And that's for Grace. This property, which is over 40 acres, was in private hands long before Rocky Mountain National Park was established. Grace Davis's parents bought it in 1941. I asked Richard why his in-laws were interested. Mr. Davis was a conservationist. He loved the outdoors. And his philosophy was that he wanted to be a friend of man and live by the side of the road. And he truly fulfilled that obligation. He wanted to be a friendly man. And the family held it for 76 years, but they also decided, you know, since they have their own lives, they cannot maintain the thing, and I don't know what God has planned for me, we decided to move the property on. Well, we could honestly make a good, conscientious decision. The family is selling the property to the park, thanks to a promise that the Davises made years ago, that whenever they were ready to sell, the park would get the first opportunity to buy. Larry Gamble is planning chief for Rocky Mountain National Park. I am so thankful for the family and honoring the commitment that apparently was just a handshake 
between L.V. Davis and whoever was the superintendent at the time. I, I don't even know who that was. The park needed help to pay the $3.5 million price tag, and they got it from two conservation groups, the Rocky Mountain Conservancy and the Trust for Public Land. Larry Gamble recognizes that the sale means the end of an era. I can totally understand, you know, the incredible connections to this place. It's surrounded by Rocky Mountain National Park, so it's brought a lot of people here to an incredible setting and generations of attachments. And I can understand the sense of loss. And I think what we do offer is that it will be preserved for future generations to come and enjoy. But he can't say what the park will do with the land or whether the cabins will stay up. The sense of loss Larry Gamble describes comes through when you talk to Dick Aldrett. I first came to Cascade Cottages when I was five years old in 1952. Dick Aldrett's memories of Cascade Cottages are sensory, like crawling into sheets hung up to dry on a clothesline. They just smelled like the day. They smelled like the fir trees and the snow and the air and the flowers and the elk and the totality of this whole place was in those sheets when you put them on the bed. He stopped by on the day I visited to say hi to Richard and share some cinnamon buns. We sat down in the main office. It has a small rustic kitchen in the back, a bedroom off to the side, and a big living room with an old piano and some plush chairs. What are your earliest memories of being here and maybe being here with the Davis girls? In this room, this is the way it was every night. Guests would come in, and Mrs. Davis would make cookies, and this room would be filled with 10 or 20 people just telling their stories. And they were from Africa and Australia and Europe, an array of the most interesting, fascinating people from all over the world sitting right here. And, you know, we, we all have a story to tell. You felt like you were home. And... uh Amazing. I'll miss them all. Richard, you just closed up the cabins for the last time in the past couple of weeks. Yes. We're, we're closing them down. Uh, we're putting them to sleep, uh, draining all the water lines. We'll sweep all this off and get all these pine needles out of here. Yeah. And we'll do the laundry, hang them on the lines, dry them. And that's it. That'll be the last time. If you know anybody who wants a Maytag washer, let me know. A Maytag washer from what, 1950? Well, this this is a 45 model, and it still works, so we're thankful. I asked Richard if there's anything he'll take from the cabins when he leaves. He says no, it's more about the memories. But as I'm leaving, I snap his photo in front of a sign that hangs outside, pointing the way to the office where he sat for so many years. I'd like to take that, he says with a smile, nodding at the sign. I don't think the Park Service is going to mind. I'm Rachel Estabrook, CPR News. Rachel visited Cascade Cottages in Rocky Mountain National Park when they closed for the last time back in the fall. The park's purchase of the property was finalized just this month. You can see photos of the cottages and share your own memories if you have them at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters.
In January of 1948, a plane carrying 28 Mexican farm workers crashed in Los Gatos Canyon in central California. Newspaper accounts named only the three-person crew and an immigration guard. The other victims were all simply listed as Mexican nationals, or deportees. That outraged folk singer Woody Guthrie, who wrote a poem about the crash. Years later, a Colorado musician turned Guthrie's words into a song. Here's a version performed by Bruce Springsteen. Well, the crops are all in and the beaches are rotten. The oranges are falling near creosotons. I'm flying them back to the Mexican border. Take all that money back again Goodbye to my one Goodbye Rosalie Adios me Samigo You won't have a name when you're at the big airplane All it'll call you will be deported In 2015 I spoke with writer Tim Hernandez who used to live in Colorado He came across a newspaper article about a plane crash and realized it was the same one from the song. He decided he wanted to tell the stories of those 28 deportees. The book, which Hernandez calls a documentary novel, is now out. It's called All They Will Call You. He told me about how he began his research for the story in California. I found a, a list online, uh, and it was very sort of, I could tell it was grossly misspelled or someone took guesses at it, uh, at names. But it was on a couple of sites, and it was a first and last name of the, the people that were supposedly on board. It, it slowly dawns on you that this might become a book of nonfiction. Right. You know, once I, again, after I have this list from the internet, I find myself on this now quest to find out if these are the real names. And so I I go to the cemetery because I find out in my research that their remains of the 28 passengers are actually buried there at the Holy Cross Cemetery in Fresno. It's a mass grave. It's a mass grave, yeah. And if you go today, it's just a giant sort of plot of green grass, and and that's where all of the, they're all buried there. And there's a headstone marker, very humble marker, and it says 28 Mexican nationals who died in a plane crash are buried here. Well, I knock on the cemetery's door and I basically ask them, you know, who were the list of names? You know, I figure they have them because they buried them. They might, they should know. And uh, I, I knock on their door and ask them and they say, we don't, we know of the incident. We're aware of it, but we don't have a list of names. It was a new cemetery uh, worker there at the time. His name was Carlos Roscoe, and he was fairly new there. And he said, you know, I'm aware of the history. I don't have the names, though. And then I start talking to him about the Hall of Records, Fresno County Hall of Records. Right, because maybe the officials would have the names, right? Absolutely. Death records, that sort of thing. I went and uh, basically knock on their door as well. And they wouldn't even get – we wouldn't get past, you know, uh, step one because uh, they wanted to know if I was related to any of the deceased. And I said, no, I wasn't. And they they didn't want to give me any information. So I went back to the cemetery again. spoke with Mr. Roscoe in there and said, uh, we kind of both came up with the idea, well, you have business with him. I don't. So why don't you go? And Carlos Roscoe did. He went to the Hall of Records and there's where he found uh, the list of names. They had a list there. What was exciting about this list now was that it didn't just have the first and last name, but it had first, middle, and last name Hmm. for all the folks aboard, all 28. Makes searching a lot easier. Oh, absolutely. But even so... He and I just at first glance recognized that some of the names had to have been misspelled. You know, we had never, neither he or I had ever heard of a last name like Placenti as being a Mexican last name. We heard of the name Placencia. 
You know, so there's like sort of these small sort of nuances, different variations of the last name. So we started to kind of take guesses at maybe this was misspelled here, misspelled there. But that's where really I think the idea now of uh, of nonfiction started to really take hold in me. And I realized, wait a minute, I got to put this whole fiction idea on hold, you know. Um, and so we took this name. I took this list back home with me and said I got to start again from square one and researching. Um, and that's where my sort of research started to unfold. And I wanted to find out who these people were. And I started to actually find more information about them. We're going to talk about that mm-hmm. search, uh, sure. complicated by the fact that the names are not yeah. necessarily correct right. in just a moment. But I, I'd like to talk about what exactly happened on January 28th, sure. 1948. Um, give us the brief story. Yeah. Um, well, in January 28th, 1948, uh, early in the morning, um, 28 Mexican nationals who were here working uh, were being deported. And they were going to be flown out from Oakland to El Centro, California, and um, sent back to Mexico, essentially. And as the plane took off that morning, they experienced difficulties. And um, right as they began to enter uh, the fly over the San Joaquin Valley area, uh, the one of the wings caught fire and, you know, came off of the airplane and the ship just started to tumble down from the sky there in, in Los Gatos Canyon. And there were a lot of witnesses, as the yeah, article the said. First, yeah. Right, yeah. The first, uh, some of the first witnesses, obviously, were uh, – there was a road camp there. It was, called, it was an old prison camp, actually. And 100 prisoners or so were out in the yard at the time and were literally right beneath seeing it happen to the point that the warden at the time, a man named Melvin Wilmerth, saw it and actually thought it was going to land on the prison camp and started to kind of t- tell everyone to take cover. Well, let's go back to this list of names and what you do with it. Sure. It was almost sort of um, – against my instinct as a writer to make this public. Because as a writer, you do the research, you write the book. You don't want to give away the story. (laughs) Yeah, you do the research, you write the book, and then later you seek this sort of publicity for it, right? (laughs) And hopefully there's some attention on it. But this actually, and that's why I was kind of reluctant for a while to, to even come to the media for this. But finally, I had a friend who worked in a local newspaper there in Fresno, a bilingual, the leading bilingual newspaper there in the San Joaquin Valley. And I said to him, here's a story I'm working on looking for the families. If any of them are surviving family members are here in the valley, your paper might be able to reach them. And so I gave him the story and he wrote it. And two weeks after that story printed, I received an email. And it was probably the greatest email I've received. It was in Spanish. And it said, I saw in the newspaper that you were looking for these deportees, these 28 Mexicans that died. I'm the grandson of Guadalupe Ramirez Lara, and I am the nephew of Ramon Paredes Gonzalez. My name is Jaime Ramirez. And uh, if you need to know anything about that crash, I can help you. So these were two related passengers. They were two passengers aboard that flight. Yeah. And when I received that email, even now telling it, I get chills. Um, Because here I was, see, one of the big questions was that, in fact, I was working on the assumption that the families never knew. That the families of these passengers never knew. They just never got word. They they know that their family member didn't return, but they didn't know what happened. They didn't know what happened. And I had to work on that assumption, you know, um, just because that was, I think, the the thing that made the most sense was to work from that angle of I'm looking for them. They're not going to be looking for me, you know. And lo and behold, here's this email of this gentleman who obviously knew about the accident and said, I have information for you. And so that was exciting. That was the first exciting sort of thing that I learned was that they did find out some way. At least his family did. I right away called him and still with uh, some, some sort of sort of hesitancy, at least, because I have to sort of, you know, verify, right? Anybody could read the paper and say, I'm the surviving family. I have to really sort of make sure that they're the family. But in the first two minutes, you know, I, I knew it was the family because he said, you know, I have a, an old original newspaper from 1948 that the Mexican consulate sent my family. And I've kept it in. It's a tattered piece of newspaper that, that tells us um, all the names 
all of the towns they're from, and it has a list of the surviving family members for each person aboard. And in the end, how many connections were you able to make with how many of the 28 passengers? Right now, it's only these two families. I mean, it's only the family of two of the folks aboard. Yeah. Yeah. Do you hope um, to do you hope to uncover more? Well, I should say it's only for the for the of the Mexican passengers, two families. But I'm also in touch now with the pilot and the stewardess's family as well. Um, yeah, I do hope to find more. I have already sent out uh, different emails and phone calls to other families that I, th- I believe are related, and I'm just waiting to hear back from them. You know, uh, again, this kind of stuff takes time because sometimes they don't know themselves. Well, let's go back to this song about uh, the the plane crash. It started actually as a poem uh, that Woody Guthrie wrote. And the man who set it to music and eventually caught the attention of Pete Seeger was a a man in Colorado, Martin Hoffman. Martin Hoffman, yeah. He was a student at the time at um, CSU Fort Collins. He was part of a ballad club, a folk music, a musician's club there. Nine years after Woody penned the poem, he kept that poem and turned it into a song. And he was just performing it with amongst his friends and that sort of thing. Pete Seeger came um, in 1957 to do a series of concerts here in Colorado at the time. The Ballad Club was Pete Seeger's host. Um, and after at an after party, Pete Seeger was falling asleep. Uh, and they said, hey, Marty, uh, why don't you play that song that you wrote of Woody's poem? And Pete said, oh, you wrote a song? Sure. And Martin Hoffman played the song for Pete Seeger at this party. Huh. Pete Seeger said, play that again for me. Wrote it down in his notebook, the musical notes. Went back to New York, and a few months later, Martin Hoffman received a letter from Pete Seeger's agent saying, Pete is going to record the song the way you performed it, and he wants to give you the credit for it along with, with Woody Guthrie. So that's why now that song today is credited to Woody Guthrie and Martin Hoffman, because Martin Hoffman composed the melody that we all know and love today. And that has been uh, sung by so many. I mean, yeah. obviously Pete Seeger, Arlo Guthrie, Joan Baez, yeah. Judy Collins, Dolly Parton, yeah. and the list goes on. The list goes on, yeah. Is there a particular part of the song that haunts you? You know, I, I, the refrain, who are these friends all scattered like dry leaves? You know, that's that's the question. Who are these friends? That's that's the that's what I'm trying to answer in my research now. The sky plane caught fire over Los Gatos Canyon. A fireball of lightning and shook all our hills. Who are all these friends all scattered like dry leaves? Radio says they are just deportees. That's Pete Seeger singing there. And I'm haunted by the, the visual of the leaves yeah. as well. Uh, why don't we go out with um, a new version sure. of the song Plane Wreck at Los Gatos. It's by a friend of yours. This yes. is Lance Canales. Yeah, and he was very instrumental in the fundraising. Lance Canales was as well, so yeah. For the headstone. Uh, he's a blues musician in Fresno, and in this track, you read the names. That's right. Of, yeah. the, of the passengers, That's or right. all 32 aboard? Um, we read the names of the 28 passengers. Of the 28 passengers. Yeah. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Some of us illegal and some are unwanted. Some of us illegal and most are unwanted. It's 600 miles, Mexican border. It chases like outlaws, like animals, like these. I plane caught fire over Los Gatos Canyon. A fireball of lightning that shook all the hills. Tim Hernandez is the author of the new book, All They Will Call You, what he calls a documentary novel. It's about a 1948 plane crash in California that killed 28 Mexican farm workers. The event he wrote about is the subject of the folk song Plane Wreck at Los Gatos, a poem set to music by a Colorado man. 
Our interview was recorded in 2015. And that's Colorado Matters for today, with special thanks to Don Dixon and Andrew Ellis. I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News. Goodbye, Rosalita.